This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. My name is Jim Minns, your host, uh, and we are again joined by the fantastic Wigs themselves via Zoom tonight, which is a bit of a shame, but uh, you know, it's better than no Wigs at all. Mr. Stephen Lawrence, the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo. Gracious hey. hey, Jim, it's good to be here, and it's my fault that we're on Zoom, so I'll just acknowledge that at the outset, accept responsibility. Thank you for your acknowledgement there, Stephen. Duly noted. Mr. Emmanuel Kirkasharian, how are you over there, sir? Very well. Greetings. I'm well. Thank you. Lovely, lovely. And last but not least, the fa- the famous, the last one to get in headlines, Felicity Graham. Jim, boys, good to be with you. In this episode, the Whigs put prosecutorial fairness under the microscope. First up is a discussion of a new decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court in Bradley versus Senior Constable Chilby, where a defendant in local court proceedings demanded disclosure of details of his accuser's history of violence, drug use and dishonesty in a case where self-defence loomed large. Magistrate Roger Clisdell refused the accused's application and warned that requiring the police to disclose that material would break the entire criminal justice system. On appeal, Justice Christine Adamson quashed the magistrate's decision and found that the prosecutor's cavalier approach to her duty of disclosure fell far short of what the law requires. The Whigs discussed Justice Adamson's interesting and important decisions about exactly what obligations are put on prosecutors to disclose material that might assist the accused person. Secondly, the Whigs discuss a recent decision of the High Court of Australia in Newen versus the Queen, which decided a long-standing controversy in criminal trial law in Australia. Does the prosecution have to put into evidence an interview with an accused person person who doesn't make a confession, but rather denies the commission of the offence. The Whigs examine these new and important cases in a wide-ranging discussion drawing on their practical experience as criminal lawyers. Now, without further ado, let's get into it. And we're starting off today with a discussion on the 1994 film starring Michael Douglas and Demi Moore, if I'm not mistaken, Disclosure. Felicity, take us away. Take it away with a review of Disclosure. <laughs> Jim. Have I got that correct? That's the topic for the evening. Okay, I'm right. going to pivot from the film. Uh, we're not going to the film. We're going to pivot and review a decision of the Supreme Court that was handed down a bit earlier this year in a case of Bradley and Senior Constable Chilby, which is a case that comes from down Wollongong Way in New South Wales. Uh, Mr. Bradley uh, was a defendant in criminal proceedings in the local court and charged with an offence of assault occasioning actual bodily harm. The sort of rough picture, the scene that brought the case to court was um, at a home where there were some friends, including Mr. Bradley and some others, and the allegation was that at the end of the evening when... Uh, everyone was dispersing. There was an argument of sorts uh, between Mr. Bradley and another woman, which resulted in Mr. Bradley biting her finger. Mm. Uh, and that was 
the central part of the allegation as concerned Mr Bradley, but it was very much in the context of an account that he had given right at the outset of being confronted with the allegation that that biting of the finger happened in self-defence because the woman was holding him in a headlock uh, at the time and he was um, struggling to breathe. So Mm. that was the sort of key background sort of set of facts uh, such as they are. Mm. and So a case of sticky fingers but not about stealing. Mm, indeed. It's not how I remember the movie, but anyway. <laughs> Sorry, was that funny? Yeah, it was half funny. Felicity. Oh, man. Manny, I want to see you laugh when I make great jokes like that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll continue. <laughs> So, Mr. Bradley um, was prosecuted in the local court, which um, kicks off a process ordinarily that involves or ought to involve the prosecuting agency and and prosecuting uh, body, including the investigative police, handing over to the accused or disclosing to the accused um, evidence that has been collected during the investigation and material that is relevant to the case, including evidence or material that might be relevant to the defence case and might be relevant to things like the credibility or reliability of any key witnesses, such as the complainant. So are there rules around disclosure? How does it work? Yeah, so there are. So the rules... Uh, come from a number of different sources. The main source uh, in criminal proceedings, particularly in the local court where they're being prosecuted summarily, is in the common law. So cases that have set out the, in effect, minimum requirements for fairness of criminal proceedings. Okay. How is that set out in common law? Is that just like good practice or has that been judge-made law saying you must disclose this and therefore that, that's made it binding? How does that work, Flick? Yeah, so the principles are set out in various different decisions of courts, including in the High Court, and that then sets the parameters for what is expected of a prosecution body. Okay. And... The principles are necessarily um, drawn in ways that can have general application. So um, whatever might have to be disclosed to kind of meet those requirements of fairness, there's no exhaustive list or there's no checklist that can be necessarily uh, consulted to make handed over that should be handed over but the kinds of things that should be handed over are everything that was gathered during the investigation statements of witnesses that are proposed to be called statements of witnesses that are not proposed to be called by the prosecutor um, prior convictions of prosecution witnesses and the fact sheets for any kind of relevant entries on prosecution witnesses criminal records uh 
other material that's relevant or potentially relevant to the credit of a prosecution witness. So these are things like where a prosecution witness um, has been a police informer or things mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then a general catch-all of all material which could reasonably be seen as capable of assisting the defence case uh, and also material that's relevant or might be relevant to the mitigation on sentence if the person pleads guilty or is found guilty. And where, where's the rebuttable nature of, of all this come from? Like why, why would the police be hesitant? Anyone want to take that one up? I mean, you know, aside from the obvious, where does it stem from? I mean, why would the police be hesitant? <clears throat> because, well, let's not let's not start with the cynical ones. Let's start with the legitimate ones. They don't want to be put to do work that is otherwise unnecessary. Um, they don't want to hand over things that are otherwise private or that might jeopardise other investigations. They're all reasonable reasons why they might resist. Another reasonable reason is that they're under-resourced um, and they don't have the time nor the money, although... Given the amount of money they spend fighting disclosure, I don't know how much that has, how much basis that has in truth. Another reason is that they just don't understand. That is to say the training is so poor of the officers who to whom the decisions are delegated that they're just not interested in complying. Um, and they don't know how to comply. They don't really know what's what their job is to hand things over. Um, and, of course, the most cynical one is, well, why should they help? you get off the charge that they're proffering against you. Mm. I think another reason, Jim, is that, you know, by the nature of these obligations, it falls on them to make the determination generally, like it falls on them to assess the material and then apply the standard of disclosure to it. And often when... uh, you know, there's late disclosure or some process, an appeal or whatever happens subsequent, you sometimes get some in, some insight into what uh, decisions they've made. And in one sense, the decisions often seem to be self-serving um, and perhaps to lack good faith. But I think there's a really substantial element of um, sort of institutional bias, uh, to put it one way, that they just see things differently, you know. So they'll look at a criminal record from a particular slant and a particular perspective as a party um, and form some view that it's not relevant and shouldn't be disclosed or couldn't adversely impact on the credibility of their witness. But uh, because it's such a slanted perspective, it's wrong or at the very least not looking at things objectively. Mm, There's a recent case that we should also mention. We'll come back to what happened in in Bradley and Chilby in, in a moment. But there's a recent case in the Queensland Court of Appeal, a case of Ernst, which I think is really worth mentioning in this context because in that case the officer in charge of the investigation had been in contact with a relevant witness during the course of the investigation where they, um, being a friend of the complainant in a sexual assault type case, Um, had told the investigator things to the effect of, look, the complainant has told me that she was having an affair with the accused and that, um, and, and 
gave uh, an account that was very much consistent with a consensual sexual relationship and also gave information to the officer in charge that suggested that there were some serious credibility issues and issues to do with having lied about various different relevant matters. None of that material that had been uh, told to the investigator in the early stages of the investigation was disclosed to the accused or even, I think, the DPP who were prosecuting the case. And the accused was put to trial, he was convicted, and then that material was discovered or the availability of that material was discovered and an appeal was put on on the basis that there'd been a miscarriage of justice for the failure to disclose and so on. And in that case, the investigator gave evidence in the appeal proceedings and was cross-examined about his state of mind and about his processes in the investigation. And he gave evidence that his attention was only upon facts that might assist the prosecution case and that he was only interested to find out if the friend, this relevant witness, might be able to give evidence to strengthen the credit of the complainant rather than anything that might detract from her credit. And he was he was entirely uninterested in learning that there may be issues about the reliability or credibility of the complainant. And so he ignored or did not hear what she had to say about those matters. Righto. And in that case, the Court of Appeal obviously said, yes, miscarriage of justice occurred <laughs> and all of that material which has now been uncovered um, should, you know, should have been and it means that there now has to be a retrial. Gosh. But I think there is, unfortunately, um, somewhat of an entrenched culture of non-disclosure within policing agencies and even in prosecution agencies more broadly, which is one of the reasons why these principles of the common law and and some of the statutory provisions that also protect an accused in this situation and require briefs of evidence to be served and so on are really important and really um, courts and and prosecuting bodies and representatives of accused persons need to be really vigilant about making sure that they're adhered to. Mm, mm. So what's the first step in like, you know, if you've, if you're one of you wigs are given a trial or, or given a case and, and you know, I mean, what is it like, you know, is it a feeling? Is it a vibe? <laughs> I mean, how do you, what are you going in blind? You don't know it? Like how do, how do you even address the issue? Yeah, well, I what I always say to people about this because I've spoken to lawyers about this quite a bit and so have Steve and Manny is you just need to be really mindful that the accused doesn't know what the accused doesn't know. And so you just have to be so, I think, conscious of that and go into cases with, you know, quite a high degree of diligence around it, making sure that these things are adhered to. And that can be done in a number of different ways. I mean, obviously you take your instructions from your client and they might have certain information about witnesses or things that might then prompt you to say to the prosecutor, hey, um, 
hand over this, hand over the criminal record of this witness or that witness. Um, But also I think part of gaining experience as as a criminal defence lawyer or a criminal practitioner generally is that you learn what documents and evidence to expect would exist in certain situations. Okay. Mm. So you learn, for example, if someone has been arrested, then there will be a certain raft of documents that should exist if that fact exists. So there should be records from the police station detailing exactly what time they came in, exactly what time their arrest was, how long they were kept in cell for, then when they were moved into the interview room, what time any DNA was taken from them and so on. And there should be records relating to the reasons for the arrest and all of that you would expect to exist and all of that might be quite relevant to, for example, whether an interview with police is admissible evidence or not based on whether the proper procedures have been followed um, by police. But I think we should just quickly come back and finish the story in relation to what happened with Mr Bradley. So he was prosecuted. The case was on foot for a number of months Although a range of documents existed, including a lengthy criminal history of the complainant, which had matters of violence on it, um, a whole bunch of matters relating to drug offending and a whole bunch of convictions relating to dishonesty-type offending, none of that was disclosed to the accused um, voluntarily by police. Uh, And in that case, um, the legal aid... Uh, solicitor Tim McKenzie, who appeared on this matter down in Wollongong and did an excellent job for Mr Bradley, he um, issued a subpoena to the Commissioner of Police seeking um, that criminal history and also other um, records. And he, Ms., um, Tim had done some investigations himself, which is something that you sometimes need to do or it can, can be useful to do, and looked up, for example, the the online court list for the name of the complainant and found that she had court cases on, mm. court cases on, and so knew, well, there must be something here. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, and so the commissioner um, resisted producing documents on the subpoena and they engaged a firm of solicitors to represent or the commissioner engaged a firm of solicitors to represent him to resist production of um, material that should have been handed over anyway. Mm. Um, But ultimately they backed down and handed over a sort of partial criminal history, which had all those records I mentioned, violence, drug matters, dishonesty. And that then resulted in... um, Tim and I putting on another application to the court, to the local court, asking the court to make an order or to stay the proceedings until the police handed over the further records relating to those criminal convictions, Mm. further records relating to this prosecution, this key prosecution witness. And the magistrate, uh, Magistrate Clisdall, sitting down in Wollongong, refused that application 
mm-hmm. and said that um, the application was effectively attempting to break the entire criminal justice system and that, um, it, you know, it just wasn't warranted at all and that the accused could have a fair enough hearing without this material. Um, but that then went on appeal to the Supreme Court and Justice Adamson in the Supreme Court said, no, that's not good enough. Uh-huh. So, so you didn't destroy the criminal justice system? <laughs> yes, she did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we just get to see the full implementation of the destruction. <laughs> manipulator of the law. <laughs> is that one of our trolls, manipulator of the law? Mm, certainly yeah. is, certainly is. Yeah, well, um, in fact, Justice Adamson confirmed that these very long-standing principles of the law, um, as they applied to Mr Bradley's case, required the disclosure of the material that was being sought and that the the prosecutor had had fallen far below the expected requirements or expected standards of a of a prosecutor investigator. So incredible. So because that was in the local court, there was no legislative provisions. I was there. It's yeah, just so the common law. But the general provisions in the Criminal Procedure Act you know, sections 183 and onwards and some in the criminal procedure regulation that require the brief to be served. Mm, So statements and exhibits and stuff. Exactly. But that doesn't encapsulate the full ambit of what is required to be disclosed to an accused under the common law. And so, yeah, it's really the common law that steps Mm. in and fills the gap. Mm. So, Jim, just going back to your question before, I mean, if you get a trial brief, for example, then that's in the district court or the Supreme Court. So there's a clear legislative regime that has all these provisions that speak specifically to this and they require the police to give the DPP all relevant material and then it requires uh, the DPP to disclose to the the defence anything that could assist the accused, including by way of undermining uh, the credibility of prosecution witnesses and the like. So it's a completely different regime. But if you're briefed in the local court in a summary hearing, then you don't have those provisions, those sort of broad provisions. So you're at the whim a lot of the time of the discretion of police prosecutors. Mm. Yeah, so the matter Felicity's talking about is a perfect example of that where you have to appeal sometimes to get your justice. Yeah, Mm. right. Yeah. And just luckily for Mr. Bradley, I mean, he wasn't in custody. Um, he wasn't subject to any bail conditions. He was just at liberty. Um, and, I mean, obviously the proceedings went for a long time and they weighed heavily on him. But the tragic, I think, often circumstance for people who are in custody on remand, awaiting determination of their proceedings, it gets sometimes to a point where it's either going to result in them spending more time in custody than they would even on a conviction to be able to protect their interests in the proceedings than, um, you know, if they just decided to play guilty or, or they got found guilty in circumstances where um, they don't have all the material they should. But... Coming back to that point that Steve raised about the different regime in 
indictable matters or matters um, that go to trial in the district court or Supreme Court. One of the things that Justice Adamson made really clear in Bradley's case is that there's no basis in principle to distinguish between the duty that applies to police prosecutors and the duty that applies to the Director of Public Prosecutions in those trials. And the common law still has work to do in trials as well, don't you think, Steve? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's an it's an ongoing um, obligation as things develop in the course of the trial. Um, but, you know, those statutory obligations continue to operate throughout the trial too. Yeah, but, sure. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that they don't sort of cover any reasonably required disclosure, then the common law is going to fill the gap. Yeah. And the thing is that, Jim, it's not just necessarily about things that are obviously relevant to the criminal proceedings and the issues as they kind of emerge from the prosecution brief. Um, So the prosecuting agency or investigative agency has got to disclose material which raises a new issue, the existence of which is not apparent from the prosecution brief, um, or material which holds out a real prospect of providing a lead on that kind of thing. So it's a really broad category or sets of categories of things that must be disclosed. And that's because we have a system, a common law system, which has as a foundational aspect the presumption of innocence and that guilt is to be proven if it is proven Mm. beyond reasonable doubt. And so anything that might lead to a doubt... (laughs) Um, has to be made available and, and, and may well inform a decision whether a prosecutor continues with proceedings once the accused has had appropriate material disclosed to them and had an opportunity to respond to the proceedings and, yeah. you know, write to the prosecutor and say, look, given all of this and given what we know as well from our instructions, for example, uh, you shouldn't be continuing with these proceedings and sometimes they're not. And our listeners will be interested to know that in Bradley's case, after Justice Adamson's decision, which made it clear that if the proceedings were to continue against him, the police were required to disclose the further material relating to the complainant and the issues relating to her reliability and credibility and other documents that related to the investigation that hadn't been handed over. Instead of handing all of that material over, the police decided uh, to quit and uh, terminate the proceedings against him rather than comply with the disclosure obligation. So the proceedings came to an end. So this little sermon is called Disclosure in New South Wales is Broken. Um, The... Listeners who come from civil, particularly civil litigation backgrounds, would be interested to know that there's effectively no discovery in criminal proceedings. Um, One of the justifications for that is that we are to trust the police and the prosecuting agencies to do their job and affect discovery without us having to do anything to get it. Okay, and, and just for the morons like me, discovery is the actual documents that you receive at the beginning of a trial. Is that right? Discovery is this formal process that kind of happens in civil matters where the parties generally, or the court if necessary, comes in, but generally the parties negotiate between themselves. Look, these are the categories of documents that we think may be relevant. We want your lawyers to go through all of those documents 
tell us what they have done, setting out, you know, we took these steps, we read these emails, these are the ones that are disclosable and here's a list of them and if you want them, here they are, right? Right. So that, that it doesn't happen in part because defendants don't have a duty to disclose anything, but because we're meant to trust the prosecution agencies to engage in that process themselves. And the frank reality is that they don't. Um, the rules that apply in New South Wales, there's statutes that say, for example, that certificates need to be filed saying that disclosure obligations need to be, that have been complied with, there are obligations on practitioners and so on, but none of them have any teeth. Um, compared with, say, in Western Australia, where if you fail to disclose, it's a criminal offence in an indictable matter. Wow. So we don't have anything like that. Mm. So what is what you will see when you get a criminal brief in the sorts of matters I do, which is normally sort of largest litigation, largest criminal litigation in the Supreme and District Courts, is you will never see on a brief, you will rarely see an email between two police officers you will rarely see a draft statement taken from a witness. You will often have evidence that is obviously disclosable, referred to. For example, uh, you know, Joe Blogg said this to me uh, and I read this document about it and they haven't given you the document, right? So that's all commonplace. And what you importantly never see on a brief or very rarely see on a brief, at times where people are claiming full disclosure has occurred, any of the private notes made by the New South Wales police on their computer system about matters. And the reality is they have to make notes about almost everything they do. So all of these things invariably need to be subpoenaed. And what that tells you without me telling you another word is that disclosure obligations are almost never met in any matter without the defendant having or the accused having to push for them to be met. It's completely broken. And then what happens is you push for them to be met, say by issuing a subpoena or writing a letter and or both, as I do, and what you get is the, you're not, the, the practice is that you can't subpoena the individual officer in charge of an investigation. You have to subpoena the police commissioner, which is great because the police commissioner has access to all these documents. But what the police commissioner does is he hands you a subpoena to the officer in charge of the investigation, the very person who has failed invariably to give you the emails and notes and all the things and says, hey, can you abide by this subpoena? Can you, can you give me the documents that are relevant to this subpoena? They say generally that there's nothing relevant that hasn't been disclosed and you get a letter back saying you don't have any forensic purpose for what you're seeing. Now, this was a problem when I started practice as a barrister 10 years ago. Today, it's an outrageous problem. Um, it happens in almost every matter that I'm in. It happens to be the case that in almost every matter that I'm in where I issue a, where I have a subpoena issued, the police commissioner's immediate response is you have no legitimate forensic purpose. <laughs> uh, you get matters where, for example, you get claims made that disclosure has occurred where people haven't even checked their own inboxes, let alone other people's email inboxes, to see whether there's any relevant material. And so where we are left in New South Wales is that you can no longer trust the prosecution agencies to comply with their duties of disclosure. And in particular, you can't, I mean, well, you can't generally, 
you especially can't list if you're searching after some sort of exculpatory evidence, right? And what that means is because there's no other avenue of disclosure, all you can do is subpoena and seek stays because of disclosure failures, which are notoriously hard to get. There's no way for defence practitioners or for courts to be convinced that disclosure has occurred. Unfortunately, the weight of authority is that the courts don't get involved in that sort of thing because they trust the prosecutors, which is the very thing you can't trust anymore. (laughs) So we're in this kind of catch-22 situation. What it's going to take, in my view, is some prosecutors losing their practising certificates for their failures to comply with the legislation. I don't know whether that's going to happen. It's really hard to do. And we as lawyers don't want to go up against our colleagues. Like, nobody wants to put a colleague down for having ticked a box that says I've disclosed everything when they haven't, when they haven't turned their mind to it. But this sort of thing is happening all the time. Can I ask you a question? Is there a, you know, is there some sort of detriment to a prosecutor, uh, you know, uh, within their professional outcomes, you know, long-term futures where, you know, if they, if they did play entirely by the rules, they'd be at a disadvantage in the long run. Is there, yeah, is there there's, no doubt about it. there's no doubt about it, Jim. It used to be that Crown prosecutors were appointed effectively for life or until statutorily senile. They're now appointed for seven-year periods, which means that they, are, they may not be reappointed if they don't behave. And I've had a Crown prosecutor who I won't name say to me, I'm a bit worried. I'm getting a, my solicitor said to me that I'm getting a reputation as a fair prosecutor as if being a fair prosecutor was a bad thing. (laughs) And so if you're there and you disclose all of this information um, that hurts your case, sure, that's liable to affect your career. It's going to piss off the police officers. It's going to piss off your instructing solicitors from time to time. And worse, worse is, and, you know, I think the DPP is primarily full of well-intentioned, intelligent lawyers Worse is they don't have the resources and the time to do their jobs properly. So more often than not, you get the disclosure failures because they just don't have time to think about it. And the police are resistant to producing things to them. And the director refuses to use his powers to direct the production of material when the police resist that it resists its production. So we're kind of in this horrid situation where the whole system is denying material that is evidently disclosable and we're starting to see cases come through where where convictions are being overturned for committals there's a couple that have come out that are suppressed at the moment because they're up for retrial um but top of your head top of your head how many how many convictions do you do you reckon are unjust as a result of failure to disclose I mean, I, it, it's interesting. If 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 disclosure obligate, if you if that question is, how many convictions are infected by a failure to disclose something? Yeah, that's my question. My answer to that question is almost all of them. I would totally mm-hmm. agree with that. Almost all of them. I and would say, whenever I look at a brief, the first thing I do is go through and write a list of all of the things that are missing, all of those documents that should exist that are plainly relevant and that haven't been included in the brief. And usually that list is into 
item number 50, item number 100, that's the first thing I do. Then whether or not it's a battle to get those things, ordinarily it is. But the starting point I think is that you never get disclosed to you everything that you should from the get-go. And it's, it's, I think, particularly in a summary jurisdiction, it will definitely be the case that people have decided to plead guilty to offences because the way that the evidence in its summary form has been presented to them and the advice that they've been given by their legal representative in the face of that is that it's an overwhelming position in circumstances where things have been withheld, where it paints a completely different picture on it. Yeah. I mean, Steve, you've had a case or a couple of cases that we were involved in out at Dubbo at the ALS where the complexion of the case completely changed once proper disclosure had occurred. Yeah, so I'd agree that almost all convictions are affected uh, to some degree by a lack of disclosure, but I think it's particularly acute and serious in the summary jurisdiction. And I think that's because you don't have that slightly more independent arbiter there, which is the DPP. And it's certainly not a complete answer. And I've certainly dealt with uh, prosecutors from the DPP who will refuse to ask the police for criminal histories, will rely on the fact that they don't have things in their possession and they won't take steps to try to get them when clearly those things are relevant and might assist. So it's not a perfect situation, but it's much worse, um, I think, in the summary jurisdiction where uh, the police prosecutors are not independent of the local area command and they're by and large not legally qualified and not sort of exercising a modicum of professional judgment. And, yeah, I've been involved in some appalling cases and one that sort of started a process of Felicity and I working on disclosure when we are both out at Dubbo was a fellow um, up on domestic violence charges from, um, from a far western town. I think he was up on two or three assaults or assault causing actual bodily harm type charges. Um, they were listed for hearing. Uh, the solicitor with carriage was sick, so I went over to appear. And it was listed for hearing, but there'd been no disclosure of sort of criminal histories of the complainant um, or other witnesses or anything of that nature. So I said to the police prosecutor, oh, can I have uh, the complainant's criminal record um, um, and any other relevant documents? Uh, she said no. She said no. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's nothing relevant. So I raised it with the magistrate. I said, look, it's either um, an adjournment or the prosecutor complies now because I'm not uh, proceeding with this hearing until I'm satisfied that there's not matters going to credibility, at least on her record. And then the magistrate sort of pushed and shoved a bit. Uh, The matter was stood down. Uh, The police went back to the police station and they came back with a criminal history with, I can't remember if it was five, six, seven or eight prior convictions for either make false statement, attempt to pervert the course of justice or public mischief. Turns out the complainant is a serial serial maker of false allegations of assault. Um, um, I then said to the prosecutor, I want all the fact sheets uh, that relate to those entries. She said, no, can't have those. So we went back in front of the magistrate. 
I said to the magistrate, look, this is what I've been given. It's appalling. I should have been given it already. Now I'm being told I can't have the fact sheets that will allow me to understand exactly the extent of her previous lies. And then I think it ended up being adjourned by the magistrate on the basis that it might be a waste of time to continue with the hearing because perhaps the prosecution had a few problems. So, yeah, like on one view, maybe an extreme example, but I don't think an uncommon one when, or particularly when non-legally qualified uh, police prosecutors serving in the same command as the officer in charge with a mindset of the New South Wales police are charged with making these decisions. It's just not a good cocktail. And, Steve, my memory of that case is that when you appeared, that was not the first date the matter had been listed for hearing. That is correct. It had been adjourned a number of times because the complainant had not attended court in answer to her subpoena to give evidence against the accused. And the prosecutor had sought to use this mechanism in the Evidence Act to rely exclusively on her written witness statement that contained the allegations on the basis that she was an unavailable witness because she hadn't turned up and so it could get around the hearsay uh, exception that ordinarily would require a witness to come and actually give oral evidence and be cross-examined. Mm. And they wanted to rely on that um, exception in the Evidence Act on the basis that um, her statement to police was a highly reliable one. And they did all of that in circumstances where they'd hidden all this material that showed that she was plainly a very unreliable witness. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, the matter had previously been in, in the carriage of, and, you know, I can't remember who they were, but it would have been a junior solicitor working at the ALS, a very young lawyer. And um, it just makes you wonder how many matters like this are slipping through, how many people are pleading guilty as Felicity said, on the basis of fact sheets that are not a fair representation of the investigation. Um, Yeah, but that case was actually sort of started a process at ALS Dubbo, which led to um, John McKenzie, who was then the chief legal officer of the ALS statewide, sending an email to, I can't remember his name, is it Dixon Felicity? Superintendent Dixon? Yeah, Superintendent Ian Dixon, who is the head of Prosecution Command in New South Wales. Yeah, so Felicity and I drafted this uh, communique which was sent to him um, uh, with John's assistance and uh, he's obviously a very reasonable fellow because he cut and pasted uh, the communique and then sent it statewide to all police prosecutors uh, to remind them of their their obligations of disclosure. And Flick, funnily enough, that communique or that email pops up um, in the case that we're discussing, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It's, it's extracted. So what happened was in part of the correspondence that was sent uh, by Tim, the solicitor, uh, to the police prosecutor and to the officer in charge, a copy of Superintendent Dixon's email, which copied and pasted what John had written, which copied and pasted what we had written, um, <laughs> sent that to the OIC to remind them of what their duties were, which was what the purpose of Dixon's email was. And then Justice Adamson extracted part of that 
email in her judgment at paragraph 16 and endorsed it saying, yes, Superintendent Dixon accurately stated the legal principles well. <laughs> Via you guys. <laughs> Look, yeah, and in fact, it's, not just, it's not just summary offences where this is a problem, I can tell you. It's, it's a huge problem in indictable offences. The so-called EAGP scheme, that what replaced committals in New South Wales, basically lets prosecutors sign off um, effectively that disclosure has occurred when it clearly hasn't. Mm. And it happens in almost every single case in the local court that's going up on committal to the district court. And everybody knows it. So much so that the district court has now put in place a regime that requires an affidavit um, from the officer in charge saying that disclosure has occurred. Um, I'm aware of matters in which that has been said and it has been untrue. You know, sworn evidence has been untrue about that. Um, the, I think, I think there's not really going to be a solution to this until there is a legislative amendment or a suite of legislative amendments that require disclosure and impose real sanctions on those who fail to disclose. Um, I also think, I, I, I mean, it blows my mind that anyone from the DPP can sign off on a brief, can sign off on disclosure on a brief where there's been a major investigation and they don't include an email between investigators. Like, just blows my mind that, that they wouldn't automatically go, hey, has anyone gone through their emails? And that just doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, I think... Well, they don't disclose the video of the interview that they rely upon with the accused where they say that the accused made some relevant admission and they don't disclose the evidence relating to the collection of DNA from the accused, which they say is the DNA that's the critical link identifying the accused as the relevant perpetrator. I mean, it's just so entrenched, isn't it, Manny? Yeah, and it's, it's so entrenched. And, you know, there's this sense of acceptance, I think, by courts and practitioners. And part of the problem is, and this is no slight on lawyers who who do legally aided matters, um, the reality is that in order to properly chase down disclosure in a complicated, indictable matter in the district or Supreme Court, you need to spend upwards of $50,000, $100,000 sometimes on lawyers and pretrial hearings and motions and so on in order to affect disclosure. Legal Aid doesn't have that kind of funding. If you've got two days preparation, you have the time to write a 40 pages of submissions on disclosure in every case. whole thing's broken. And, in fact, there's been people who've gone to the CCA saying that they have a right to have many hours of telephone intercept material sorted through and transcribed by the prosecution because it's clearly relevant and they don't have the resources to fish through it. And... Um, uh, the ones that I'm recalling, those applications have generally not been successful. No. It's, and it's because I think there has been up until recently, well, there continues to be rather, an acceptance that the prosecutors are doing their job properly. Um, and there I include the police. And frankly, with respect to them, they're not. So on that note, we should probably talk a bit about the case of JB, which is one of the notorious instances of the DPP failing to disclose um, in a murder trial. So JB was um, a Sudanese Australian uh, young guy who was accused of a stabbing, um, a stabbing murder in 2008. 
and he was arrested and taken to a police station in Western Sydney. And uh, because he was under 18, there's a requirement in law that a person playing the role of a youth support person was available to speak to him. And a person was found by the police to play that role and he went into the cell where JB was being held. He came out of the cell a bit later and told police that JB um, had confessed to the murder. And that youth uh, support officer's evidence was the key evidence in the trial. It was the indispensable piece of evidence that proved in the context, I think, of a sort of melee in public where there was lots of people there that it was in fact JB who uh, was said to have murdered this fellow and he was convicted. Mm, the fight between two, two groups of young males, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yep. And the admission uh, was the key bit of prosecution evidence. Uh, JB appealed his conviction and what turned out to have happened, or I should say firstly, he appealed his conviction on the basis that that admission should not have been admitted and the Court of Criminal Appeal didn't agree with the argument that there was a special relationship between a youth support person and a suspect such that uh, there should be a confidentiality to it. Uh, the CCA rejected that. And so the first time this matter went to the Court of Criminal Appeal, it was quite a controversial decision. I know a lot of people were surprised that it was considered to be fair to admit an admission in those circumstances. Uh, but it transpired that a far greater injustice had been done to JB because um, he appealed again. And it turned out that the youth or the so-called youth support officer who the New South Wales police had arranged to enter the cell that day was actually a registered police informant. It was proven in the appeal proceedings that the police and the DPP um, or the office of the DPP had known that he was a registered police informant. And Anthony Wheely, who is a retired Supreme Court justice who sat on the appeal, spoke out in the media um, in the aftermath of the setting aside of the conviction and made it very clear that if he had known back in 2012 that this individual had been a registered police informant, that he would have set aside uh, the conviction and he would have acquitted him. So JB spent uh, many years in jail as a very young person on account of, I suppose... Six years and eight months. Yeah, six years and eight months. It hasn't really sort of entered the public domain exactly who in the DPP knew about this. And um, I think that think that we should be clear about that. Um, there's obviously involved in a murder trial uh, generally a Crown prosecutor and then um, obviously a solicitor who instructs them but also other people. And it's never entered the public domain who exactly knew what. So various people have been criticised and named um, in the course um, of media coverage of this story, but it's not uh, precisely clear, I suppose, in one sense, who is to blame. Certainly the New South Wales police knew, and it also transpired in the proceedings that uh, the solicitor for the registered informant, in fact, was involved in the defence of JB, at least for a certain period. So that was another really strange aspect to the matter. But, yeah, I mean, it's an example of what Manny was talking about, which is this is not just limited... Uh, to summary matters involving police prosecutors, really grave failures of disclosure have led to miscarriages of justice in the most serious matters in our criminal justice system. According to the Attorney-General in that matter, the Crown Prosecutor and Instructing Solicitor had met with the witness, the, the secret witness, 
uh, but notes of the meeting provided to the defence, quote, appear to have been edited and did not mention that he was a police informer. So the other thing that happened with JB, I mean, he's got quite a complex history. So Steve mentioned the first appeal. He applied for special leave, having lost in the Court of Criminal Appeal against conviction and sentence initially and running that point about whether or not a contested confession that was alleged to have been made to a youth support worker should be admitted in accordance with the requirements of fairness to an accused in criminal proceedings. And special leave was refused. And then the way it came back to court, because normally that would mean your appeals have been exhausted, that's the end of the day, but the way it came back was through this mechanism called a conviction inquiry where the the breach material having or the material that ought to have been disclosed having been subsequently discovered was then um, put forward on a conviction inquiry which was then immediately referred to the Court of Criminal Appeal for a second appeal to be heard and upon learning of that there was no retrial or anything. He was immediately acquitted and released on bail pending the final orders being made by the court for the acquittal. And the support person or so-called support person um, was also a fraudster. And I think that's how ultimately um, one of the lawyers on the team twigged to this issue of the witness being a police informer because they somehow subsequently got a copy of the so-called support person's criminal record and one of the lawyers noticed that they received a really, really lenient sentence for a fraud matter and also had multiple charges on their criminal history that had been withdrawn. And they then followed the trail of that and realised that there'd been a really big discount given on sentence and the reason for the discount was suppressed. And that then twigged them to the fact that there must have been some assistance to authorities issue or some police informer issue that then ultimately got tracked down and that's how it all got uncovered. So apart from all of that, is there any reason why he wasn't a suitable youth support officer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, normally, normally for children, the rule is that they're, they cannot be interrogated by the police unless they're in the presence of an adult support person. And normally um, that role would be played by a trusted family yeah. member, like a parent, um, or ultimately result in through the kind of support person process through with the child exercising their right to silence and not actually participating in an interrogation. Or a um, random crook that the cops have got on speed dial. Manny, I was reflecting on your cure to this this broken system and the need for some kind of more grave consequences for those who breach their obligations. I think we also need to be a bit self-reflective as defence practitioners or those of us who um, participate in criminal proceedings as defence practitioners from time to time because I think that to some extent... Um, there 
is a there can be a practice of resorting to the issue of a subpoena to the commissioner of police, for example, as the first step in rather than taking steps to mm. insist upon disclosure being met without the need for a subpoena mm. and that issuing a subpoena as that sort of first port of call can to some degree be the kind of conduct by defence practitioners that really perpetuates the second-rate system of justice and perpetuates the brokenness of the system. And I then- completely agree with that, Flick. And I used to have a practice for a long time of, in kind of summary matters, never as a matter of principle issuing a subpoena for a criminal history. I just used to turn up to court on the hearing day and say, I want it and I won't be proceeding. I'm not ready to proceed until I get it. And yeah. like it, it just works. They just fold because the magistrate appreciates the innate unfairness of the situation and forces the cops to do something. And look, when they don't appreciate the innate unfairness of it, it's not aided by issuing a subpoena because you know, they're, they're just likely to set it aside or something. But I just think that th- there is much to be said for the collective insistence by practitioners on behalf of accused persons that disclosure obligations be met and that to the extent there's any institutional pushback, people just need to be emboldened that insisting on the minimum standards of fairness is not attempting to break the entire criminal justice system. Yeah, Despite I, I, what some magistrates or, or police officers or judges or whatever might say. And that cultural change can be achieved through collective insistence on behalf of accused persons. Yeah, and, look, we, and we should just be vigilant to avoid unfairness, avoid injustice. And, I mean, sure, I'm not saying that there aren't situations where a subpoena to the commissioner is warranted. Of course there are, but... I think defence practitioners need to have a reflective practice as well and and examine their own practices and examine how they might be contributing to the brokenness of the system. I agree with that, and I think that we need to write disclosure letters all the time, but I think the practical reality in indictable matters, the resources required to put on a stay application in the face of a Crown who's not going to comply with its duty of disclosure are so immense uh, that you're better off issuing a subpoena in many cases, a subpoena and a letter, and also you may well be criticised on appeal if you haven't issued a subpoena and you need to bear that in mind. But I do agree with you generally that we need to be, we need to be insistent. It's just really frightening, isn't it? Because JB's case is quite a palpable one that reveals just how unjust convictions can occur and how lengthy and unwarranted loss of liberty of a human being can occur through a breach of disclosure. Yeah. But JB is also another good example of not giving up, right? Because he ultimately did get released Mm. and the hard work of the legal team not being satisfied with the results all along the way um, ultimately, in a belated way, paid off. The High Court of 
Australia has recently decided a Northern Territory case was answering a question about when a prosecutor is required to play an interview between the accused and the police in evidence they put before a jury in a criminal trial. Often, an accused might want to exclude from evidence he, what he or she said to the police, for example, if the police acted unfairly or during an inter- uh, interrogation, but we're going to talk about a situation in particular where the accused wants his or her interview played with, with the police played before the jury in a Crown case. Now, this, this is fascinating. Felicity, take it away. Jim, in the case of Van Dong Nguyen and the Queen, the High Court has recently given a decision just last month about, as you said, when a prosecutor in a criminal trial is required to play an interview between an accused and the police in the Crown case. And the reason that that question came before the court for determination is because Mr Nguyen was charged with some assault-type offences in the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory. Having been arrested for those offences, he participated in an interview with the police where he admitted throwing the bottles at the two alleged victims in the course of a party that had gone awry and a singing game that had gone off the rails. And having admitted that, he said he did so in self-defence and gave an account about what had happened in the lead-up to throwing the bottles and why he did that and the... um, the actions of the two alleged victims that caused him to do that. So his account was different to what the uh, Crown witnesses said had happened, yeah? That's right. Mm. So he went to trial. The prosecutor played his video interview to the police at his trial. The jury couldn't decide on a verdict, and so there was a retrial. And at the retrial... The prosecutor refused to play the video interview that had occurred and said uh, in answer to a question from the judge whether that was because the Crown had, quote, a better chance of winning without the recorded interview. The prosecutor said, quote, to be blunt, Your Honour, yes, it's a tactical decision. And... So what does that mean, tactical? They went on to say this, that if the exculpatory statements, in other words, the statements that supported a self-defence case, were given in evidence, the appellant would not be subject to cross-examination on that account, on that account and that the accused could give evidence about the matters in the record of interview if he chose to and then would, in the ordinary case, be subject to cross-examination by the prosecutor. So you suggesting that when the prosecutor said it's a tactical reason that they were trying to force the accused into the witness box? That seems to be the context in which that statement was made. Because it could also just mean we don't want to lead it because it weakens our case, right? Mm. Could could mean that. Um, mm. So the there was another case of Singh 
where a similar issue had come up in the Northern Territory and Mr Singh had been convicted after an interview hadn't been played and wanted to raise that as a point on appeal. Mm. And so these cases travelled together to the High Court. Oh. Um, so they like contemporaneous cases, obviously, right? Yeah, they were. And so... When Mr Nguyen came back for his second trial and the prosecutor was saying, no, I'm not going to use the video interview, the court agreed to stay the proceedings or put them on pause and send this question up to the appeal court um, at the same time as Mr Singh's appeal was being dealt with and or around the same time. And then they travelled to the High Court together And the first, there were basically two questions that were being posed. One was, is the recorded interview admissible in the Crown case under the rules of evidence? And two, is the Crown obliged to tender the recorded interview in their case? And at the appellate stage in the Northern Territory, that second question was answered no. Mm. And then in the High Court, they said the answer is yes. Mm. So um, setting this um, standard for what should occur. So you can now request your interview with the police to be administered as evidence? Yeah, so it sort of comes down to a few different factors. Um, Ordinarily, what an accused says to police about the allegations when they're usually confronted with what they're said to have done in the context of that initial stage of an investigation. When you're under arrest? Yeah. Okay. usually happens when you're under arrest. It may happen sort of within an hour or so of, of <coughs> the relevant event having occurred mm-hmm. or some short time. Normally through the sort of different prisms of rules of evidence, that would be considered to be relevant, what the accused says. Mm. But you probably know, Jim, about hearsay and how things that are said out of court generally are not allowed to be used as evidence in court. Right. So what the accused says out of court, starting point is, okay, yes, it's relevant, so it goes in, but it's hearsay, so it stays out. Then there's an exception to that rule that says, well, if what is said is an admission against the interests of the person, then it doesn't matter that it's hearsay, it can come in as an exception to that rule. And the issue that was at play here is the fact that this recorded interview contained both inculpatory and exculpatory statements. In other words, he said, I threw the bottle. That's something that helps the Crown. Mm -hmm. Then he said, but I did it in Mm self-defence. That's something that um, is exculpatory or assists him in his defence. So it's a mixed statement. That's right. I hadn't actually heard this expression, mixed statement, before, but the judgment says... This appeal is concerned with what is commonly called mixed statements, i.e. a mixture of admissions and denials. I've never actually heard that. We're Mm. fortunate enough in New South Wales that prosecuting agents take the view that... It goes in. It goes in, Mm. and I've I've never had to argue it. I hear from time to time of people having to argue it in the local court, but I've always had my prosecutors put it in without blinking. 
Yeah. Even if it's completely exculpatory. Right. Yeah, there's been a real jurisdictional difference here because when I started practicing in the ACT, we always led them. I was a prosecutor then. Yeah. Then I went to work in um, overseas in Solomon Islands where there was a lot of Australian lawyers at the time and we had... Victorian lawyers, New South Wales lawyers, uh, WA lawyers, Queensland lawyers, NT lawyers uh, who were prosecuting up there. And I became aware of this sort of disparate practice because um, up there, there was no sort of particular prevailing practice. They're bringing with them. Yeah, and the WA, Queensland and NT prosecutors would refuse to lead them. Mm. And the Victorian and New New South Wales prosecutors would lead them. Mm. So I became aware of this sort of different practice that was Mm. prevailing in different parts of Australia. Mm. That was back in 04 to 07, mm. so it's certainly good to have it resolved. Mm, it is. So the High Court sort of analysed it in a few different ways. One was through the admissibility question, and they pointed to this part of the Evidence Act that says, OK, you've got an admission, but if there's something else that is said at the same time or shortly before or after and to which it's reasonably necessary to refer to in order to understand the admission, then that is also covered by the exception to the hearsay rule, so it goes in. And that's a provision in the In, in the, the Evidence, Evidence Act. Act, that's yeah. right. But then what they said is, OK, just put aside the Evidence Act for a moment. Is this a federal Evidence Act? I haven't done it. Yeah, so there's a Sorry. there's a uniform evidence uh, scheme in Australia okay. that um, jurisdictions have signed onto um, with some variation, and um, it, certainly in the NT they have signed onto the okay. uniform law. Right. New South Wales has as well. Uh, Victoria, Commonwealth, Commonwealth. Mm. In most places now. Yeah, most places now. So, but what the court said is, okay, let's just even put aside that for a moment, that kind of technical analysis of whether you jump through all of those hoops. There's another provision of the Evidence Act that says the parties can agree to dispense with the rules of evidence and in criminal proceedings where a record of interview doesn't meet those exact criteria there seems no reason in principle, the High Court says, why a prosecutor um, ought not properly resort to this provision with the consent of the accused and then adduce that type of evidence, even though it might not exactly meet the criteria for admissibility. And the main way that the the plurality, this is Kaifu, Bell, Gagler, Keane and Gordon ruled, was to look at the role of the prosecutor and what what you can glean from their special role that they play in criminal proceedings. And part of that involves the requirement for a prosecutor to fully and fairly present their case to the jury. And when you bear that in mind that leads you to a conclusion that in these circumstances of a mixed statement, the prosecutor should um, include that as part of the evidence that they present in their case and not refuse to do so, which then puts the accused in this position of having to decide, well, do I get into the witness box and expose myself to criminal... um, to, to, sorry, rather, uh, cross-examination? So are they saying there... So they're obviously saying there that 
it's part of the prosecutorial obligation to present their case in a full and fair way to reduce that evidence. So that's a rule. But are they saying there that if they don't meet that obligation, that that will constitute a miscarriage of justice that will lead to appellate intervention normally? They pose that as being a, an outcome that could occur. Yeah. And so this is in the context of the demands of fairness um, in a particular circumstance being informed by the actual circumstances of the particular case. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's pretty um, strong. Now, the court carves out um, an exception in circumstances where, um, bearing in mind that a prosecutor chooses what evidence they put um, forward in a case, where the evidence that is not led by the prosecutor is demonstrably unreliable or inconsistent with objective evidence. And I just thought it was really interesting that they referred to that exception in this particular context of um, interviews with accused because that has quite, um, I think, a natural uh, outcome or a sort of sensible outcome when you're talking about other types of evidence. But when you're talking about an interview between the accused and the police where the prosecutor forms the view that they can show that it is so demonstrably unreliable and inconsistent with objective evidence, then the prosecutor will be seeking inevitably to use that interview to show that the accused has lied Mm. as consciousness of guilt and will want to use the Mm. interview in a way um, adverse to the accused or at least to impact on their credibility in yeah. an adverse way. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, it's interesting that that's the, that's the carve-out that's identified yeah. um, as justifying not adducing the evidence because, in reality, that carve-out will mean the prosecutor will inevitably want to use the evidence. Mm. I mean, it's worth noting that there's a kind of tension between this idea that the prosecutor decides what to tender and they have to tender everything that is relevant effectively to the case. So if, let's say there was completely exculpatory DNA evidence in a matter. It's no part of the prosecution's case to tender that, except that they ha- there's some duty that binds them to do so, despite the fact that it's not in their interest to do that. So I don't really know. It's, it's kind of like you know it when you see it kind mm. of stuff. This is something that they should have tended and they didn't, and this is something that you know maybe falls into a crack. Mm. So the the judges said, look, the creation of a tactical advantage might be permissible in civil cases, but that's not the case in criminal cases because it doesn't fit with the traditional notions of a prosecutor's function. Mm. And they, I think this sort of answers your question, Steve. They specifically drew out this issue that... Um, it will be obvious that a decision by a prosecutor to refuse to tender a mixed statement so that the accused is forced to give evidence falls into the category of um, a tactical decision that um, shouldn't be permitted. So it seems to be trying to create that disadvantage to the accused by not using some evidence that you have available to you. Can I throw something out there as uh, someone who's not familiar with this, uh, with, with you know, with criminal law procedure? 
in this particular case, if you guys were representing this particular client and the case went ahead and the pros- prosecution refused to put this evidence into play and your client had to face the stand, uh, what's the problem with um, your client facing the stand from a I guess a other side tactical point of view, why is it an issue? And can't you just go on the record and say, I said this to the police officer in the interview, and then therefore it is on record? Because you can you can prejudice your case in a criminal trial in front of a jury through giving evidence. I mean, and that can happen in a number of ways. Uh, I think maybe the most important one is that when the accused foregoes their right to silence and gets in the witness box in a jury trial, the whole dynamic of the trial can change okay. because the jury is told from the outset the accused doesn't have to prove anything, the onus is on the Crown, the Crown has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the jury is told that at the end, regardless of whether the accused's, accused gives evidence or not. Mm-hmm. But if the accused does give evidence in a subtle but important way, it can change the dynamic and all of a sudden you have assumed the mantle of having to prove something. Mm-hmm. And if you fall short in your evidence, then it can mean that the jury is more likely to find the criminal standard met. Mm-hmm. But I think also there can be a myriad of reasons why an accused doesn't want to give evidence. First and foremost, they don't think that they'll be persuasive, even if they happen to be truthful. But also there might be parts of their story that might be seen as undesirable to the jury there might be things that they've done that they don't want the jury to know, even though they are not guilty. Mm. So there's a whole lot of tactical, important considerations that go into whether the accused gives evidence or not. So most lawyers doing this sort of work would tend to want an exculpatory interview in because you don't have to be cross-examined, you're not sort of opened up to that, you don't change the, dyna- the dynamic of yeah. the trial. I mean, for years there was a, a dot statement available where an accused would simply stand up and read out a statement to the jury and not not under oath and not face cross-examination on it. And in many ways, the recorded interviews replaced that, although that wasn't the plan when when those changes were made. Um, It's interesting to wonder whether or not, assuming the the Crown prosecutor or the prosecutor in that case had simply not had not said what they said. Rather than saying, I, I'm doing it for tactical reasons, just said, look, I don't believe this and I'm not tendering because I think it's wrong. Would the High Court's judgment have... Would the High Court have come to the same decision if the prosecutor had expressed that view? And they would have, right? Because the interview doesn't, in New End, doesn't seem to easily fit into that category of obviously fanciful. I mean, mm. he just had a different version. Mm. It was different to two witnesses, but wasn't like he was saying he'd been on Mars or something. Yeah. And in the context of people being intoxicated and reliability issues perhaps, perhaps pertaining to many of the participants in the event and so on. Yeah. yeah. Manny, the thing that I think is quite important to distinguish between the doc statement and the recorded interview at the police station is that that interview almost invariably occurs in the context Mm. of an accused not knowing what evidence the police have against them, Mm. certainly not having a brief of evidence um, within our kind of Australian system. There are other systems like in the UK where they have a different um, disclosure regime where you get material much earlier, as I understand it, Mm. before you're called upon for an interview and things like that. And so an accused in that situation or a suspect in that situation is really flying blind in terms of 
what things the police might have to be able to kind of notionally catch them out on any inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. And so to the extent that they give an exculpatory version or a version, um, I just think there's quite a meaningful difference and they're in a position where um, what they say about what has or hasn't happened at that stage is can be quite compelling mm. because it's without without the it's very different to a doc statement where you're fully armed that happens at the end of a trial after you've had legal advice throughout the whole trial and run your case and mm. and so on um, no I accept that I mean the other thing that concerns me about recourse to what's called the duties of a prosecutor and the duty of fairness of a prosecutor and things like that is that we are well past the time where most prosecutors are barristers. It may have been true once, but these days most Crown prosecutors are not drawn from the ranks of the private bar. They're career bureaucrats Mm. who take that appointment, often having never done any defence work, and have the institutional duties that fall upon... the institutional pressures that fall upon you if you're part of that regime... Um, one hears from Crown prosecutors all the time that they put pressure, pressure is put on to them by their solicitors to run matters in certain ways and so on. And I just wonder whether or not it would be better to get rid of this idea of the notion of fairness from prosecutors, have proper disclosure regimes, simply apply the rules, and no longer, in effect... One of the things that I notice is that often you get up into into appellate courts or of some sort of review of decisions and it's said, well, we can't review the decision of the prosecutor or we accept that the prosecutor has complied with their duties and it puts an end to an inquiry mm. into whether or not what has happened has happened properly. And I think that this is an area that maybe it would simply better to ha- be better to have the contests um, to enforce the fairness rather than have these kind of notions of fairness that are amorphous and and not easily Mm. definable. Aren't these Mm. questions, though, determined in slightly different ways at different stages? So one of the things that the, the plurality says is the tender of evidence by the Crown cannot be compelled by a trial judge although in, a, in practice a trial judge might suggest that the prosecutor reconsider a decision not to tender certain evidence, which might then bring about the tender of it, and that a trial judge might do that to where it's foreseen that a failure to do so may result in a miscarriage of justice. And so you can find what can happen at trial stage, although um, it would be interesting, I think, in a in a particular case, to run a temporary stay of proceedings mm. on the basis that the Crown is refusing to tender material that ought be tendered and have a judge determine that question. But once you get to appellate stage and you're looking at the full court record, everything that's happened, I don't think there's a reluctance of appellate courts to say, no, what has happened here... Um, is wrong in terms of what the prosecutor did or didn't do or failed to do and send it back for a retrial if they... applying those principles of fairness if they come to that conclusion. Um, I think... I think I agree with you that there is some assumption that a prosecutor has acted in the way that they ought, but that only goes so far in the face of material that shows they haven't. 
the, the difficulty often is getting the material. 100%. I think there's a strong case for statutory amendment so that many of the outcomes of these duties are requirements of law. So, for example, yeah. this, this aspect of the prosecutorial obligation which says that they must call all available witnesses who are relevant, that's um, just an aspect of this common law obligation. I mean, why not just pass a statute, put mm. something in the DPP Act, mm. put something in the Criminal Procedure Act to say that they have to do it? And, you know, disclosure, they've done that in respect of trials in the District Court and the Supreme Court, but still no statutory clear obligations of disclosure in summary matters where matters are predominantly prosecuted by the um, uh, the police, you know, represented by sergeants who often have no understanding of their disclosure obligations mm. and don't comply with it. And it's an amorphous common law obligation, which means that it's on it in the breach. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. And the response often when you complain will be the assertion from the bar table that I have been so fair, I have met all my obligations. And you don't have a piece of statute that you can point to to say to the magistrate, it's clear that they're not being fair because Mm. they haven't complied with the statute. Mm. Jim, one or two other things to note about this case that might be of interest. Um, The Northern Territory Legal Aid appeared for Mr Nguyen, uh, but the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, NAJA, appeared on an amicus curiae basis, which is something that is perhaps not that common in Australia, although it is practised much more in places like the United States. And what does it mean? So it means um, in Latin, friend of the court, um, and it's, it occurs sometimes when there are matters of importance where a particular agency or, for example, a human rights body or something thinks they have something to say that might help the court come to their decision, although mm. they're not a party to the proceedings. Mm. So they put on um, written submissions in both Mr Nguyen's and Mr Singh's case. And one of the things that they pointed to, which is something that Justice Blockland had also referred to in one of the earlier um Territory Supreme Court cases was that during the interview or at the beginning of the interview, Mr Nguyen was cautioned and he had an interpreter and then he was asked to explain the caution in his own words and he said, whatever you ask and whatever I answer will be taken as evidence in the court. And part of what Naja said was that where you have an investigating police Mm. officer, an agent of the state, who's made a positive representation um, to a person that what they say will go into evidence, that it's that it produces a, at least a perception of unfairness for the prosecutor, who's also the embodiment of the state, to then resolve from that position. It's interesting. Yeah. It's misleading, isn't it, to give them that caution? It is interesting. Suggesting that... Yeah, but they're allowed you to should lie. talk because it'll it'll be shown to the court. Well, the caution in New South Wales is maybe exactly mm. anything that um, you say or do may be mm. used in evidence. Mm. 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 But even yeah, I mean, the Queen, they're they're allowed to lie to you. You know, yeah, they're allowed to lie to you in the context of. You're, whether or not you're being recorded. And you haven't given the medium neutral citation. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's only because I use reported ones. Oh, he didn't appear. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So the other yeah. thing that might be of interest is Mr Singh actually passed away 
pending determination uh, of uh, the High Court proceedings, okay. so his case isn't the subject of a judgment, as I understand it. Hmm. But 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 it's still carried over in Newham. Yeah. Okay. Oh oh no, but they were joined. Yeah, that's right. So the court only gave a decision in the case of Newen and orders in that case. Oh, so it still, still counts that, right? It still filters through for lack of a... Uh, well, Singh didn't get judgment because yeah. he died. Oh, OK. Um, Sorry, OK. Yeah, 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 but the two cases are the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The arguments were heard and no doubt informed the justices. OK. Yeah. So yeah. the Crown was represented uh, by David Mortis SC... Who, in the uh, High Court, yep, we in the should high say, court, yeah. Who's a very good mate of mine, I should say, and... Um, he fought very hard um, in classic Dave Mortar style for the proposition that he shouldn't have to lead uh, exculpatory interviews in criminal trials. It did cross my mind to ask him to be interviewed on the wigs, but uh, we all know that prosecutors can't give media interviews um, and Dave is a stickler for his prosecutorial obligations, so I didn't even uh, advance that. Good for you and good for Dave. Welcome back to the... All right, Wigs, cut it out. Welcome back to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. We are back to um, wrap this one up. But before we do, we've got a... F- I, I, well, I was going to say a few questions. We probably do have a few questions. We've found one particular question from uh, the audience directed at Emmanuel Kirkasheri, and the question is, barristers who earn the QC moniker, do they then become KC when the Queen passes into the next realm? <laughs> yes, well, do they? There's some debate between me and Ms. Graham about this, but um, my view is that Section 49A of the New South Wales Constitution Act, 1902, provides that the holder of an office under the Crown basically continues to hold that office, notwithstanding the demise of the Crown, um, and the oaths and so on basically change to match the gender of the Crown. <clears throat> as it is at the time, so that if you are a QC and we end up with a king, God save our current queen, of course, but if we end up with a king, then you will end up being a KC. Um, It's worth noting that there's a statutory prohibition on the appointment of further Queen's Council now, so it's really just a question of you keeping your office and the rank of QC is not a rank in so much as it is an office. And so by that, the office continues, the mm. gender of the crown changes, um, as does the description of your office. Interestingly, after the death of George VI, um, there was a there was a King's Council by the name of Harold Shepherd, who was cross-examining a defendant. And um, the, the, the king died. And when he returned 10 minutes later, um, he resumed the floor as a Queen's Counsel, um, having, you know, and continued with his cross-examination. And at about the same time, um, they, they started repainting the court to change from King's Bench, King's bench to Queen's Bench. Uh, <laughs> right away. So, um, so Matt, when you said that there was a statutory prohibition on the further appointment of Queen's Counsels, is that specific to New South Wales? Yes. I, I yeah. used to know where it is, but I don't know where it is. But it was passed so that the Attorney-General can no longer recommend to the Viceroy or to the Queen that they appoint Queen's Council. 
it's clear, therefore, that there's legislative power to abolish this particular rank. Is that right? Well, I don't know about that. That's a fascinating question that I, I wouldn't answer off the top of my head. Um, I suppose the state parliament has plenary powers, so it could, I suppose, curtail Her Majesty's letters patents in that way. I don't know whether they would have to pay compensation in the sense that whether that office is considered a thing of value, probably not. Um, but I suppose it could be done. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Maybe not sergeants at law, though. Even though we don't appoint sergeants at law, I think we still could. Um, which would be- <clears throat> Gosh. Guys, I don't know how you do it. It's just, do you, do you wake up in the middle of the night and go, far out this stuff is a fascinating, it just, it's, it's amazing. I think Jim's bored. Okay, so we're going to move on to fun things now, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm just going to throw a random, uh, Felicity Graham, what's your fun thing? My fun thing is a very fun thing. I am going to a book launch this week. Cool. Whose book is it? It is Andrew Bowe's book, The Truth Hurts. Nice. I have been one of the uh, one of the beneficiaries in the small group of people that have been honoured with a pre-release copy of the book. Uh, I've almost finished reading it. Uh, I think that's a door requirement to uh, to get into the event. Do they ask you some questions before you enter in? <laughs> um, no, it's I've just found it so far to be really powerful storytelling and pretty hard-hitting critique of the criminal justice system uh, so far. And I look forward to asking Andrew some questions about it when we interview him on the wigs coming up soon. But that's my fun thing. I'm going to go to a book launch. Good, good. Looking forward to hearing about that. You boys have already read it. I remember from reference to the last episode of the wigs and you gave it a ringing endorsement. No, no. Actually, I'm, yeah, oh, you did like it. Oh, good. I hope, I hope so. Because Bo's listening and we want to make sure that he's not. And we can put up some details on Facebook and Twitter, but there is an online uh, event for the book launch because in these yeah. times, only a few people are actually going to be there in person. Bummer. Emmanuel Kirkasharian, the man with a million fun things and only one to choose from for tonight's episode. Only one. I, you know what? I'm just going to go. I'm having dinner on Friday night. That's fun. With a couple of friends up in the northern suburb, the far northern suburbs of Sydney, where I imagine many of our listeners have never dared step. (laughs) Um, Not only across the bridge, but far away. Um, And that's my fun thing, because otherwise I have a trial starting next week, so I'm working. Oh, God. Okay. Well, have fun. Thank you. No doubt there's a disclosure issue to deal with before the trial can kick off. Well, yeah, I, I actually spent last week in court every day, every day doing a five-day disclosure hearing, um, which judgment will come out next week. All right, enough about disclosure. All right, Mr. Stephen Lawrence. <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of fun things. Okay. Get settled in. Just let me get comfortable, Steve. Sorry. Okay. The thing is something that's already happened, and that is I was stalking Manny on Twitter uh, as I do occasionally. <laughs> At E. Kekasharian. Yep. Uh, looking. Oh, yeah. What's his handle? Yeah, it's, it's that. 
at E. Jokersharian. Okay, yeah. That one's easy to remember. And uh, he shared part of a really interesting article in the Australian Financial Review by their legal affairs uh, journalist, Michael Pelly, um, who's a friend of the Whigs. He's actually written a story about the Whigs. Um, it's called High Stakes in the Race for the High Court, and it's about... Um. It's a great article full of all sorts of rumours and gossip sort of stories about who might um, fill the places of Justices Bell and Chief Justice Kiefel in upon their imminent retirement. Yeah, because I can't wait to see that white smoke through the chimney. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's coming soon, uh, next year and then the year after. And two of the people that are speculated about in... The article come from the New South Wales Court of Appeal, uh, President Bell and uh, Justice of Appeal Leeming. But an anonymous senior counsel told Mr Pelly that their uh, prospects might have been dimmed uh, because, quote, they also were part of a court, along with Chief Justice Tom Bathurst, that approved the first Black Lives Matter through Sydney on June 6, quote, they had a chance to prove their conservative credentials and they flinched, says Wang Silk. <laughs> so that's a bit disturbing, that view being expressed. Outrated. But the whole article is really quite fun and interesting if you're into sort of legal gossip. My other fun thing is I've just come out of a council meeting of Dubbo Regional Council where it's been confirmed that uh, Dubbo will have an NRL game next year. One NRL game? One NRL game next year, definitely. Our local member announced this afternoon and we actually had an agenda item before council on whether we would fund it um but yeah the state government's preempted it so we're definitely having one so fun will our bunnies be playing steve because yeah, i'm a big bunnies fan yeah teams know. haven't been picked but you know being a councillor of course i would put aside any sort of team allegiances in taking that question forward is what there a safety plan for this nrl is that, has that already been discussed? Oh, well, mate, there'll be a cure yeah. by then. It'll be all over. Hopefully there'll be a cure by then. And <laughs> what if what what if it's like, what if it's, um, you know, Manly versus the Titans and all of a sudden there's a mass exodus from Dubbo? What do you do then, Steve? Hey, that wouldn't happen in Dubbo because I don't think it really would matter which teams it was, to be honest. It's such a footy mad place that we will fill Apex Oval, I'm very confident. Oh, that joke didn't really quite work then. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, thank you so much for your time. It was fantastic. Seriously, fantastic over Zoom. And we have one more point from Felicity Graham. I dare, how dare I go so early? Jim, what's your fun thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, I'm studying, so I've got my exams in four weeks. Yay. And I've got to edit this episode. So thank you, Wigs. Thank you for delivering me more things to do. Bless you, Jim. He whinges, he whinges, but really he loves it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Felicity Graham, the great Felicity Graham, the great Emmanuel Kirkusherian and the great Stephen Lawrence have graced us with their presence once again. Until next episode, adios. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Hey, it's Jim Minns here. For the final time, I just want to remind you all that you can also follow us on Twitter at Wigs Podcast. And it is there that you can send us your questions and we'll answer them on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, produced by Jim Minns. 